Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. My guest today is Hunter Kennedy, an architectural designer from Charleston. Hunter grew up in Columbia, went to school at the University of Virginia, and then moved to Texas, Chicago, and New York. And along the way, he became the editor-in-chief of an underground literary journal called The Minus Times. It has quite a following on both sides of the Atlantic. I'll have that conversation with Hunter Kennedy, but first, your NPR news break. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. With me in the SCANA studio today is Hunter Kennedy from Charleston. Hunter's been on the journal before, and I've known him since he was a young lad before he went out into the the grown-up world. In fact, I remember, Hunter, a conversation. You and your parents paid a visit. You wanted to be a writer. This is your junior or senior year in high school. I'd just gotten back from teaching at Middlebury, which is known for its writing program, and you were trying to decide where you wanted to go and what did you want, what you wanted to be. Now, that was probably, what, 20, 25 almost, or so years ago? Yeah. Yeah. And you have become a writer, among other things. And the reason I asked you to be on the show is because there's a collection of your magazine. I guess we call it a magazine, right? Yeah, uh, you can call it a, a just an underground literary magazine. All right, an underground literary magazine called The Minus Times, which began in Austin, Texas, moved to Chicago, and then to New York, where it really became big time. How did you end up in Austin, Texas, beginning what became The Minus Times, this underground literary magazine? That's a good question. I'm sure my parents were wondering the same thing. I uh, I graduated from the University of Virginia in 1992 and had taken a road trip to Texas with a friend of mine named David Berman that spring. Uh, We had gone out to see the South by Southwest Music Festival. We actually drove 24 hours straight. From Charlottesville. From Charlottesville to Austin. And um, at the time, I mean, it's important to remember that there was no such thing as the Internet. Um, We went because I'd seen an article in a magazine that I did not actually have a copy of about the festival. And David asked me halfway in the trip, so you're sure it's this weekend? And I said, I think it is. And he said, what? Like, there was a a better than 50-50 chance that it might not happen. But we arrived. I love the city. There's a lot of music. I didn't know anyone there, but it just seemed like a dynamic place. So I actually picked up and moved that fall to Austin, not knowing a soul, but wanting to kind of, you know, see the see the country and, and uh, meet new people. And so I arrived. I stayed with a good friend of mine. Uh, I knew one person in Austin, actually, a guy named Bill Verner. And, um, and any connection to the Bill Verner from Columbia? Yes. he, Bill and I had grown up together okay. in Columbia. And he was subsequently a contributor to this publication, as was David. Mm-hmm. So I lived in Austin, knew, knew Bill, but really very few other people. And, and partly due to the isolation, partly due to, uh, you know, the epistolary tradition, just sending people letters, letting people know that I wrote, I started doing this project called The Minus Times. All right, and, and the first editions were literally one-pagers, right? That's correct. I'd go into a Kinko's at around midnight, and uh, when they were, I knew they were really slow, and the employees who I became friends with would run off like three or 500 copies of this crude little broadsheet that I'd put together. And um, I'd give them a tip, give them some beer money, and, and go out and, and distribute it on the drag, which was the popular. It's right across from the university. It's where all the record stores and bookstores were. Yeah, something that really is a thing of the past. It it really is. Uh, Bill Verner, who I was staying with, actually, uh, he was the manager of, of probably the best bookstore in, in Austin at the time, Europa Books. So I had a couple of venues where I could leave this out. And it just... You know, just to see if anyone would pick it up and read it, and gradually, the, you know, I was very persistent with it. I'm a fairly tenacious personality, and so I, I kept at it, 
And when I started numbering the publications, people started paying attention to it. They figured that there was some chronological order. It must be important. So, um, well, now you have this thing about prime numbers. <laughs> well, I, I I make light of that uh, in the in the collected, but I'd actually published nineteen of them when I was uh, approached by uh, a gentleman named Dan Koretsky at Drag City. David Berman. Right, no, Drag City is Drag City is a record. Uh, they're a record label in Chicago, Illinois. That uh, they were actually uh, representing David Berman, my friend, who I'd gone to Austin with, and they were interested in in uh, moving into print, and, and and they wanted me to be their guinea pig. They wanted to publish the Minus Times, and so um, what I proposed is that if we were going to do this, we might as well do it right and do a real magazine as opposed to just a single sheet. So. I just pulled together a list of names of all the people I knew who wrote and started approaching people I didn't know who I thought were good writers and and that's really the you know was the genesis of the the publication and you got some pretty incredible responses. Well, I did. I mean, it it helped that uh I had just moved from uh Austin or from Texas to New York. So I was living in New York City, and and you really can't swing a stick without hitting a writer. So I managed to to hit a few good ones. Um, Now, one of the things that interested me, I wanted to back up to going back to Austin, is it's clear from having – and I won't swear that I have read every page, but I I think I read every one of your Dear Way Way letters. Each edition has a letter from the editor to Way Way, which is the name of your grandmother and of your little sister. That's correct, yeah. And it's quite clear from those letters and from the content of the different issues, you know, you come from a very comfortable background, but you clearly didn't mind where you rested your head. I didn't. I was living in a boarding house in Austin, uh, and my neighbor across the hall was an ex-convict named Snow. And I just was, I knew kind of since I met you when I was in high school that you had to be fairly fearless if you wanted to be a writer, you know, and, and just really kind of embrace that. So I wanted to see how every, how the other half lived, how everybody lived, and, and just really kind of get some experiences under my belt. So, yes, I, I, I was slumming it in Austin, and I was slumming it in New York. In Brooklyn, I moved into a warehouse space, that was um, it was an old factory space in in what uh, in Williamsburg, which is now kind of Soho East yeah, in New it's, York. It's, it's become very chic. Yeah, but at the time it was it was really ramshackle and run down, and and uh, so it was a large space with no insulation. We had one gas heater, kind of mounted in the corner of the uh, ceiling. Uh, when it was cold, it was freezing. When it was hot, the tar would drip from the rafters. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you landed what I thought was a really neat job when you got to New York. Went to work for a publishing company. I did. I had a unique opportunity. I was offered a, a part-time position at Norton, which was one of the la- the last largest independent publisher in New York. And um, it was through a. It was actually a Southern uh, friend, Lucy Anderson, who was from Charlottesville originally. We met uh, again. David Berman was the introduction. And she uh, she offered me a, a position, something had opened up. So I came on. And when I say part-time, I mean 35 hours a week. <laughs> so I was essentially there all the time. I was just short of a uh, full-time staffer, which was great experience because um, my job was to read the unsolicited manuscripts. Norton was one of the last publishing firms to take what's called over-the-transom books, right? That's correct. I mean, manuscripts. People just, dear Mr. Publisher, he, I've written the great American novel. Here it is. We were getting a lot of those, and it was drudge work. You had to. It was a, literally a mountain of manuscripts in the conference room that we had to sort through, and we had an obligation. I think that they had a. You know, it's from another era, but they felt they had an obligation to read all these and, 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 and get back to the to those who were sending them in. Okay, I got to ask you, did you actually read all the way through each one or after, say, maybe a chapter or two, you could figure that this really needed to be pulped and set to the 
recycling bin? Well, I mean, it was a great it was a great lesson and, and taught me a lot about editing because it's essentially, you know, it's the first line, it's the first paragraph, it's the first page. If it can hold your attention, you keep reading. If it doesn't or it's is structurally weak, it, it becomes clear really quickly. The more you read, the more you appreciate that. The harder stuff was was actually doing, you know, the jobs of the, the, the editorial assistants and I would fill in for assistants who were out or who go out sick would be to uh, write the responses of the editors, the more prestigious ones who had clients or, or tenured professors who were sending in books. And you were having to, to uh, critique them in detail for the editor so she could write a letter or you were writing the letter for her and telling them, sorry, your career's over <laughs> or, or, or whatever the case may be. But um, – Anyway, the the legend had it that only one book had ever been found in the slush pile at Norton that had been published. And um, what was that book? Do you know? It was it was about postpartum depression or, or something like that. But the challenge, you know, was for us to find another book that that might um, that might make it to the press. And I think it did. I'm not sure if it actually got published, but I did find a a book. It was a collection of photography of uh, butterflies. It's a long story, but I turned it into the, brought it to the attention of the photography editor, and he he did backflips, and it, I think mistakenly went into the slush pile. So, you know, there was always that you live for that moment where you actually did something, uh, did you did your job well. And so, how long did you stay at that? I, was, I, mean, I mean, it sounds like a lot of uh, fun, but it could also, I mean. It could be drudge work after a while. Well, I mean, six months uh, in the slush pile felt like an eternity. So, I, you know, I was there for – I was freelancing for, I think, seven or eight months and then moved on to um, – I moved on to a, a, a nonprofit magazine where I worked briefly, uh, just, you know, kind of fill in that summer. And then fall of 1997 was when I started working in, in magazines. And I should say that that experience at working at Norton and in the slush pile was a critical experience just for this, the minus times because it, it, it taught me a lot in terms of, uh, you know, the editorial approach, just reading, you know, and understanding, being able to quickly identify good writers. But it also gave me an opportunity. That's where I laid out the first issue of the minus times. Uh, the larger magazine was on the conference table at night. I had a night pass. I would come in with, you know, I had my typewriter. Yeah, we need to remind folks that this is still produced on a typewriter. Is that not correct? Yeah, I mean, and and, and it's not a computer. Nothing about this is generated on a computer except the crude, uh, crudely designed cover. Um, and uh, the, the I've been working on a, a standard Royal typewriter that I bought the summer I got out of college. Um, the magazine's laid out with um, a glue stick and a pair of scissors. You know, um, it's it's very uh, what do you call it lo-fi. Uh, and your publisher is still cool with this. Oh, the publisher told me he's like, "What? I don't know what you're doing, but don't change it um, because the." more we did it, the more everyone else was moving into computer, you know, graphic design and, and computer-aided graphic design. And, and um, so it, it just looks different immediately. That was the the design. The whole thing was intended to stand out on the on the rack. All right. Now, you're, you're in New York. You got your job through a Southern Connection. You become part of a rather large group of expat Southerners, including a number of South Carolinians. This is where you run into the Lee brothers. That's right. correct. I uh, got introduced to the Lee brothers in New York. Um, I should add that uh, Jeff Rotter, who's a contributor, uh, was another gentleman that I met in Austin. Uh, he was roommates with Bill Verner. Uh, you know, all these guys, there's just this, there was a network of Southerners, of South Carolinians in Texas that kind of extended to Brooklyn. And you know, in a southern, essentially a network of acquaintances and friends from the through the University of Virginia, that just after a while, um, it really kind of built up. So it, it helped. You know, it, it helped really build this magazine. It was the it was those southern those acquaintances, those friendships. So when did you run into Stephen Colbert? I actually moved back to Charleston in two thousand one and continued to publish the magazine and and. 
I got that interview with Stephen Colbert never having met him. I happened, I, I had pulled together an issue and I needed a, um, an interview with a, a, a name. And, uh, you know, it was racking my brains for somebody that I could get in touch with. Uh, that's half of it is, is trying to get these people, get their attention. And, and so I happened to be in a bar in Charleston and was uh, with a friend whose sister was in town from Los Angeles and turned out she had been a nanny for a reporter on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Guy named uh, Stephen Colbert. I said that that sounds good. You know, he's he's from Charleston. I've seen him. He's funny. Had no idea he was about to go out on his own and be one of the most uh, prominent commentators in America. So he was kind enough to do the interview, um, not having ever met me. We just corresponded via email. And uh, I think had, it's, had he ever read the Minus Times? Because I sent him. A, I believe I sent him a copy, and I think the. Um, my friend's uh, sister uh, vouched for me, you know, so... It's easy to see why this would appeal to Colbert. Yeah, I think he, he might have appreciated its reverence and um, sensibility. So he was kind enough to send this thing in, and, you know, when the, the magazine came out, I mean, it was right when the show, his uh, the Colbert Report, had uh, come, had aired, and... I got extremely lucky, you know, with with uh, having him as part of the issue. So, anyway, it's I was very lucky with a lot of the guys that I've had a chance to to interview with this magazine, like Robert Frank, uh, you know, famous famous Swiss photographer. Happened to be, uh, you know, my I had a roommate in New York who was in film school at NYU, and she told me she had run into Robert Frank in the film school. He was doing getting some film developed and mentioned that he li- he still lived in the Lower East Side. So I opened up the phone book, and sure enough, there he was, listed on East 7th Street. So I sent him a letter. So would you mind, you know, send him a copy of the magazine and a letter asking if he'd do an interview? And he said, kind of reminds me of the stuff I was reading in the 50s, you know, when he was hanging out with Jack Kerouac. I, I, I tried any and every way to get, get good writing for this publication. You asked... As the, the old saying goes, all it costs you is whatever the price of a stamp. That's right. Or a telephone call. Yeah. Well, as Woody Allen says, half a life is showing up. So, you know, I mean, I just would uh, meet folks, get to know them, and, and hopefully if they, they thought there was any kind of potential, um, you know, they would – generally people are very generous and are happy to contribute their time and effort. And, it's uh, you know, I've been the beneficiary of that. And you are still the editor. I am. It's, it's still an ongoing project, but I think that this this collection, it's 20 years and uh, 30 issues, was published on the 20th anniversary. And so, you know, I think I'm ta- – you know, essentially I'm taking a little bit of time. I've, it, as the, the project progressed, there was like uh, longer and longer intervals between the, the uh, issues coming out. So is it an annual now? Oh, no. It, I mean, you know, I think the the most flack I took was I, I, I went four years between putting out issues. I, I put out something in, or three years, and um, then I put out a double issue, which I, I said, well, you know, at least you knew I was working when I wasn't publishing. <laughs> but, um, no, it's, it's, it's maybe like on a – I wouldn't say it's on hiatus, but it's – I'm giving myself a little bit of time to tackle some other projects. Well, the, the fact that you – don't have a regular schedule kind of fits in with the mood of the of the journal, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, I think it's 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 why people love it, and it's also why it, it, it might antagonize a few people who would like some dependable things in their lives. But um, yeah, it's it's um, it fits in. It's it's uh, informal. I, I tried to approach having a literary publication without the pretense. So, you know, there's a little bit more of an organic and formal feel to it, I hope. It is very typical of an underground journal. This is a family radio station. There are some things we couldn't read aloud. Absolutely. I, you might qualify it as, uh, what, PG-13 or maybe R, borderline R. Yeah, I'd say R. Well, it, it, I mean, th- those ratings have gotten so blurred. Uh, the one thing you don't have in here is a lot of gore. Um. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, it isn't for, I mean, you don't want to be passing this out to your 12-year-old nephews. I think that, you know, it's mandatory that they at least get through 
part of high school before they start reading this stuff. But it's, you know, I think it's it's worth taking a look at. There's some really talented writers in here who um, you'll be reading about in a few years if you haven't already seen them. I can't tell you how many times I chuckled because I don't think there's a single issue that doesn't have a reference to South Carolina. And having known all four of your grandparents, I'm just trying to remember, were all four of them still alive when you first started publishing? Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Actually, my grandfather, uh, Big Hunter, uh, had died in 19, I believe, 1990. So he did not live to see this, but I'm sure he suspected that something like this would would come about. Having been Big Hunter's next-door neighbor for many years, I can see part of his humor in there. I mean, you were really blessed to have four grandparents with a great deal of talent. I mean, Hunter had had a wicked sense of humor, as did your grandmother. And not to mention your Pope ancestry. I got a wonderful letter from your grandfather, Tom Pope, back in the early 1990s uh, when I was helping Carol Campbell try to work on reform of state government. And we were pushing for a constitutional convention. And he sent me this long handwritten letter about what a terrible idea it was and so forth and so on. But the last line was, if you succeed, please save me a seat. (laughs) (laughs) um, That's great. But I'm curious as to how they reacted. I mean, this is really a generational magazine. I mean, it's it's not the kind of thing that... It is, but I think that they, I, I will say this, that I think that they, like my parents, were, they were very supportive of what I was doing. I don't think I could have uh, taken on a project like this and succeeded if I hadn't had, uh, you know, the support of my family. And they were, you know, very tolerant. They didn't necessarily understand what I was doing, but encouraged me nonetheless. And, and that's, that that really, you know, I think really helped just kind of knowing that I wasn't going to have to fight that fight as well as fight the other fights just to get people to read it, to put it together every every few months and try and make a way for myself in the in the writing world. So, no, they've been great. And, you know, I still remember my Uncle Coon, who's my dad's brother, yeah, came uh, up to yeah. me at a Christmas party and quoted from the Minus Times. And I was not expecting that, but it was, you know, they thought that there was some stuff in there that they thought was pretty hilarious. So luckily they saw the humor in it and they hopefully saw a little bit of, uh, you know, just just enough potential to kind of turn a blind eye, which is all I ask. As I say, almost every issue, and I think I could probably say every issue has something related to South Carolina. And whether you're talking about something in Colleton County or your Dear Way Way letters, how did folks outside, you know, in Austin and Chicago react? Well, I think that we need to remember that South Carolina is considered a foreign land to many people in this country. And, and uh, you know, when I I was the token Southerner at New York Magazine when I was working there as a journal, you know, as a reporter. In the late 90s, um, it was me and another girl from from Hendersonville, North Carolina. We were the Southerners. And so, you know, we would get the default questions about the South. So I think that there were, you know, with a magazine like this where you have, if you had a story about South Carolina or, or it involved that, it was fascinating for, I mean, people, other readers who knew nothing about it. I mean, I think it was, it, it only draws you in like Faulkner writing about Yachtna, Patoffa County, you know. So I think that it added, I don't know, maybe it added to the mystique for some of the people who read. Now, I certainly wasn't writing about it for mystique, but I was writing about it to kind of get a better handle on where I'd lived and, and what I'd been doing. Well, you write about what you know. A good writer does. Well, or you take what you know and you extrapolate it and you're able to write about what you don't. All right. Let's, let's talk about the origin of the, of the, the regular column, Dear Way Way. First huh. of all, you're ostensibly – the editor, you're writing to your little sister, who is a good bit younger than you are, at least theoretically, This you're writing to her. Right. Well, I think it was a little bit absurd. You know, it's a letter from the editor as opposed to to the editor. Uh, but in that context, me giving advice at age 22 to somebody, I mean, it kind of gives you a, was a jumping off point for uh, – it was some a mix of no-nonsense advice and also – opportunity to just talk about my own kind of crazy situations, which were, um, you know, maybe fictional, maybe factual. And again, this is 
you are writing to your little sister ostensibly, giving her advice, but it really it's almost a diary. It is. I think that's actually a, a fair analysis because it's advice, but it, it, it's um, as in the title, it's a little bit subversive. It's it's really more an excuse for for me to kind of speculate on my own situation too. Um, I mean, I, if you this is fairly short. If you want me to read it, I can. I, I, I do. But let me ask: Did you ever actually send your little sister these? Oh yeah, Weiwei got a copy. Actually, if I didn't send it to her, she would she would remind me. It and was how much younger is she than you? She's almost nine years younger than me. Okay, so um, I was a little bit of an exotic character who would come storming into town, you know, uh, from Texas or New York, and and give her a, a a copy of this thing that that most of her friends had no idea what it was. So. Let's give a sample of, of what your journal or what your advice is for Little Sister from the Minus Times. All right. Well, this is a letter from the editor. Um, it's, Dear Weiwei, don't let a kite carry you off that mountain. Leave it to the record executives and St. Louis restaurateurs to float around in cold space from a balloon aiming at the moon with a BB gun. And don't be shooting the campus cop cars with paintballs anymore. And I heard about that time you told the astronomy professor Cassiopeia was better known as your initials. Why is it that we're always trying to connect the dots anyway, Weiwei? We got enough on our hands at sea level. Keep your ear to the ground and your eye on the road because the deer are going to be jumping all night. And don't forget the bug lights. And don't forget the, to stamp those letters, though the mailman brings them just the same. And I, actually, that first line, she was at Sewanee at the time, so... They, they just refer to it as uh, being up on the mountain. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, I was trying to give her a little bit of helpful advice, but you know, sometimes it would just tail off into <laughs> into the other. Hunter, we have to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm speaking with Hunter Kennedy from Charleston, who is the editor of Minus Times self-described as an underground literary journal, which has celebrated its 20th anniversary with a collected edition called The Minus Times Collected, which has been extremely well received and reviewed in places like Chicago newspapers and elsewhere. So even though it's underground, Hunter, it's kind of gone mainstream. Well, I, I guess some of the contributors have gone mainstream. Uh, there's a there's a few I, I feel like I should mention. Um, Sam Lipsight has been kind enough to contribute to this magazine for a long time. You'll see him in the in his work, his novels reviewed in the New York Times. Another guy is Patrick Dewitt. He wrote the introduction uh, to the collected. I was lucky enough to be the first person to publish any of his work. He's going on to uh, be a very successful novelist. He won the. He was actually a finalist for the Man Booker Prize in 2011, and won a the award for the best novel in Canada, written in 2011, which is uh, fairly impressive. Because uh, there are a lot of writers actually in Canada. There's you know it gets cold there. There's not much else to do. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, uh, Jeff Rotter is uh, is is doing great work. He's had a a, a novel. Um, he had a novel come out in in I believe 2011. He's got a new one coming out next year. So I you know, I've been very fortunate to to have some guys kind of bring this uh, publication mainstream, you know. Um, if you do have a chance to pick it up, I mean, you'll have an opportunity to read these guys, kind of see where they were back in the day, and you may you may find another uh, another writer that you'll want to know about in five years. Speaking of getting the magazine or the collected edition, how can we do that? There's a, a few ways. I think it's important to support your independent book uh, bookstores and your booksellers if if possible. And so you can just go in and ask them if they have it and encourage them to get it if they don't. Um, but if you, uh, you know, are pretty handy with uh, the Internet and want to go straight to dragcity.com, you can order it directly from the publisher. Uh, Amazon also carries it. So those are, those are three easy ways to, to get the book. It's a little-known fact, but this Minus Times Collected Edition has an international market, and this is one of those fun stories. You and I first started communicating when you were celebrating the debut of the book in in Chicago, 
And I just mentioned that I was going to be traveling overseas, and you said, well, a friend of mine says you can buy this in Istanbul. And when Miss Neal and I were in Istanbul back in October, we asked our guide about the bookstore, and it just happened to be her favorite bookstore. We went there, and we asked for the Minus Times, and they pulled it up on the computer, and they had sold their last copy and Neil and I thought that was just pretty incredible. Here is a South Carolina boy who, as he said, lives next to a comfortable lifestyle community in in the state, whose underground journal is being bought and read in a place like Istanbul. So your underground circulation isn't just Chicago, Austin, L.A., San Francisco, even Charleston. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I've been lucky. I, I, I get I have readers in Australia, in England, in Europe. I, not I have no idea how many, but probably a handful. But it's it's nice. It's very gratifying to know that a friend stumbled onto a copy of the Minus Times in a bookstore in Istanbul. You know, and um, was really excited enough to write me to let me know she had seen it. Yeah. And it was interesting that our guide, who was a younger person in Istanbul, knew exactly, but it's on Main Street, essentially the Main Street in Shopping District in downtown Istanbul. Well, I mean, it's quite a compliment that they think it's worth reading, you know. Um, but it's it's not just – it's certainly not just about me. It's about – it's really about these other writers who, who've contributed and, and, and made it a going concern. I'm just going to read a short paragraph from – one of your one of your stories is called Sporting Chance Creek Shoes and Crabs. Actually, it's your brother. Yeah, no, my brother yeah. was w- yeah. wrote that, I believe. Thomas Kennedy from the Waccamaw Neck. You don't just walk up to a crab and pick it up. I saw a guy from Ohio do that one time, and the crab pinched him so hard that he screamed bloody murder, and flung the little circle way up on the sand dunes. The reason I know he was from Ohio is because he told me. I was standing in my creek shoes in the creek one day fishing, and a guy from Ohio asked me, why do you need to wear shoes in the creek? I replied, because of the oysters. That didn't settle with him, so he said, well, what do the oysters do? Come on. Everybody knows an oyster shell will cut your foot to shreds. I've seen it happen many times to friends walking barefoot in the creek. Anyway, the guy didn't know what was going on, so I told him to get some shoes on before going in the creek. And that's when I asked him where he was from. I had to know. Unfortunately, it's guys like that who give Ohio a bad name in the South. They come down and lie on our beaches, fish belly white, and ask stupid questions about oysters and creek shoes. (laughs) Um, So... Well, yeah, uh, we do our best to keep them out of harm's way, you know, but... You can only do so much. I just think about the, the pleasure. And, of course, your folks have got a place on, on Polly's, and you've got a number of stories dealing with you and your brother about uh, life on the coast. But even on Polly's, things are changing. I've taught my grandsons to crab. I've taught them how to pick up crabs, how to hold them by the feelers, and you rub the tummy, and, yes, you can put them to sleep. And they know how to do that. But it, it's amazing the folks who don't know how to crab anymore they just put out a crab trap you know it's um that was actually it was interesting because you know putting this magazine together i you know you're in new york and you're trying to be say keep up with things and maybe be as subversive as possible or as edgy as possible but i consistently kept putting in little things that were maybe came back to south carolina how to crab how to cook how to cook a steak on a shovel, uh, how to trap hogs. <laughs> Thomas, my brother, was an excellent contributor. He was he was my um, you know southern sportsman, so he'd come in and, and give me give me pieces like that. And I think that that's what grounded it, you know. So it kind of helped help keep things. When I'd read that compared to some of this other stuff, it helped kind of keep a balance with well, the magazine. There's there's another wonderful story about, and I can't remember whether it was you or your brother, discovering a huge dead fish on the... Oh, that was me. That was you. Yeah. I was taking a walk on the beach and, and um, came back to the house and told my mother I'd, I'd seen a, a, a man on the beach. There was a, 
a, a tarpon on the beach and a man was digging a hole to bury it and she thought I said it was a coffin on the beach. And she got she actually got interested in that. <laughs> yeah, she well I did too when I realized I was like, that sounds a lot that's a better story right there, you know. Well, but tell him how she thought it was a coffin. Actually, you're right. At the at first, I thought he had said it. I said it. I told her the name of the fish like he had told me because he was from Pennsylvania or somewhere, and he called a tarpon. So a so, tarpon, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I keep coming back to these places. I knew that you know I'd be writing about Columbia writing about Paulie's, writing about Charleston. And kind of eventually I knew, you know, I've just got the, my roots run too deep here, so I knew I'd be moving back. And I think it's actually, you know, it's it's helped me as a writer too to kind of be, you know, you can clear your head, you can really listen, and you kind of hear those new, the nuances of the language, you know. There's a pretty subversive local group that appears throughout the collection, and that is the Carolina Liquor Militia. Yeah, they've been named actually in this interview, and that'll be uh, Mr. Werner and Mr. Rotter and uh, some of our friends uh, in Austin. That was just my nickname for them. Uh, There's got to be a story. I mean, well, I mean, there was a one gigantic house on Austin's South Side with a huge porch where people spent a lot of time. This is your boarding house. This is actually not. I was living in neutral territory. But the, Bill and Jeff and a big crowd of folks had a house kind of not that far from me, like half a mile away. And so we, you know, go and just drink cheap beer and, and whatever else we could afford to, to buy and, and, and tell stories, tell well, a now, lot of tall tales. Now, would cheap beer in Austin be Pearl or are you drinking something else? Yeah, Pearl. And I actually remember I could find six packs of pearl for something like three dollars i mean it was just the holy grail you know um you know you also had uh shinerbach and you had lone star but there were some good cheap beer coming out of san antonio and uh we made use of it all right how long did you stay in austin before you moved on i was in austin for um i want to say three years and I i was in houston for a year and kind of going back and forth between Austin and Houston, and then moved to, to Okay. Now, I know what you were doing in New York. What were you doing in, in Texas? I was, uh, I was actually just living life. I got jobs out of the classifieds. I worked in a cabinetry shop. I worked for a sculptor. I was writing. It's a, uh, a lot of musicians in, in Austin, not a lot of writers. And so that's actually a good thing because you can – you see a lot of you – there's a lot of material. So – so are you a musician? No, not at all. I just enjoyed music. You know, it was, it was, it was a, a great place to spend some time. But, no, I wasn't a musician, and, and for that reason I realized if I was, wanted to get serious about writing, I needed to move to New York. And uh, as cliched as it may sound, it's it's very important. I mean, I made some just incredibly important connections when I moved to the city. I worked at Norton, one of the uh, freelance uh, Readers I worked with is now the editor of Parish Review. Uh, my first one of my editors at New York Magazine it was the editor in chief of the New York Times Magazine. I met uh, some some great folks, and um, you can't do that in any other city in the country. I don't feel like if if you want to be a writer. Well, you know, you, you mentioned the Parish Review, and I just when that magazine got started, one of their founders was another expat southerner. He just happened to be from Mobile, Eugene Walter, who became something of a literary phenomenon in Europe. Uh, oh, he was in. He was actually featured in one of Fellini's films. Yes. I've yeah. seen, well, my roommate in New York was Margaret Brown. I've talked to you about her. She was a budding documentary filmmaker, and she had done a, a, a small, unfinished documentary on Eugene Walter that she showed me. So I got to see Eugene Walter barking like a dog, which he apparently liked to do on in restaurants in Paris among the, the jet set. When he, he wasn't writing poetry. And, and, yeah. yeah. And there actually was a very good biography done of him about five or six years ago called Milk, Milking the Moon, which was one of those things that went over the transom to the Washington Post and the book review editor went over the moon about it. Eugene died a, a few years back, and his estate was actually auctioned off here in Columbia. Really? Uh, interesting 
interesting collection. I've got a few things out of that. But again, here you've got these Southerners who move out into the world, and he literally was one of the founders of the Paris Review. He was. He's the founder that that isn't discussed. I mean, you hear about Peter Matheson and George Plumpton, yeah. uh, but you don't you don't hear about the 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 boy from Mobile who happened to be with him in Paris and and, and found it. And who, when he when he moved to Rome, sort of a dream for every young expat. He was sort of taken under wing by this very wealthy uh, Italian contessa. It was not a love affair, but she she was sort of his patron for many many years, and that's how he he survived. He didn't he didn't have to live in a cold water flat like you did. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he yeah, he was very lucky. I think that everyone, you know, when you're a young writer, you you hope you, you might be lucky enough to find a patron or somebody to look out after, to look out for you. And you know, Eugene did it did it the right way. He had a Contessa looking out for him. And I think that um, Cy Twombly also, you know, he's a, he's a boy from Lexington, Virginia. People forget the some of the best modern modernist artists uh, in America of the 20th century were Southerners. You know, Jasper Johns, Jasper Johns, Cy Twombly, Robert Rauschenberg. Oh. Um, but Cy had a an a, Italian pr- contessa or, or uh, princess or something who was looking out for him. Yeah, you also talk about throughout the minus times you make references to your hometown. You call it Cola Town. It is an interesting place. People think Charleston is the source of all stories, but you've got a lot about what happened here, and I don't like the term Midlands. The Middle countries are much better. That's an eight, a 19th century term, but a lot about your old stomping grounds. Well, I mean, I think it's 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 fundamental to, I mean, you know, when I, I come back to it, Columbia gave me a lot of material, and I, I, I you know, it, it looms large in the imagination. My family, or my my mom always said, you know, Columbia is a city where you've all, you've got to be shown the. It's a it's a good looking city, but you just need to know where to go. Um, Charleston, anybody can stumble into the the historic district. Mm-hmm. Columbia is a little bit more nuanced, and I mean, I like that. I think that that's a, a more more beguiling. So, um, I mean, there's an essay I wrote called Southern. Uh, I think it's called Southern Fried After Six, references William Price Fox. Yeah. And it's about my experiences of really kind of starting to, of discovering Olympia. And uh, I, I met a guy who was living in a streamlined trailer. Uh, he was a one-armed guy and his girlfriend. And, and I was out taking pictures in Columbia. It was, I think I was 19. It was hot as hell. Had nothing else to do, and you and you had a new camera that your uncle Calhoun had given you. Uh, my uncle Gary actually gave oh, me, and it was yeah, his camera, Gary Pope. Then. Yeah, Gary Pope had given me a, a Pentax SL that was twenty years old, and no computer chips in it, nothing fully fully manual. And so I was just driving around, and and really hadn't didn't know much about uh, you know Olympia Village, um, and was seeing it really for the first time, and a camera's a great excuse to investigate anything. Well, now, see, had you talked to your father, he could have told you about that because he grew up on the hill, and the boys on the hill every now and then mixed it up with the boys from Olympia because there was literally a dividing point. Whaley Street at that point, and when your dad was growing up mm-hmm. uh, with Julian Adams and David Rembert and all of those folks, there was a ditch at Rocky, it was Rocky Branch, and there was no through street, and that was right there at the railroad track, and the other side assembly was Olympia, and then there was the hill, and if you crossed to the other side, you were messing with somebody's turf, and mm-hmm. it wasn't gangs, but it was... Uh, it was turf. It was turf. Yeah. Well, it's something that he, I, I didn't hear, I'd never heard that story, but I'm sure that it, it happened just like down at Pauly's at the Pavilion, that, the, the, you know, the, the renters would mix it up with the boys uh, from Georgetown, you know, the locals. And I'm, it's something that, it happens everywhere, but Olympia for me, because it wasn't talked about, was it was undiscovered territory. And so I was driving around through there, and met this guy, and, you know, I took a picture of him that, that, I think surprised my uncle. It was one of the better ones I've ever taken. It's this one-armed man and his girlfriend posed in front of their trailer, and she's holding a pistol, like a Saturday night special, up in the air. And I happened to nail it. Um, and that 
that really, you know, I wrote about that experience of, of taking that picture. And a kid from Columbia, many years later, approached me and, and wanted to submit to the Minus Times because he and his friends, they had read this story, and it just really resonated with them. So That wasn't Porter Barron, was it? It wasn't Porter Barron. Uh, it was Ted McDermott, uh, who later won. He's... He may he was living in Chicago at the time, but then he went and did an MFA program in Montana, and he he may still be there. But great kid, who really like that essay for whatever reason really grabbed his attention. Well, you know, speaking of Porter Barron and one of your latest issues, uh, our later issues, he's got a really interesting story. It's not about outsiders in the South, but he's he's taking on the establishment and. Uh, it's a he, southerner abroad. I mean, it's you it's, know, it's a southerner abroad in in uh, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, and Porter can hold his liquor, and <laughs> the allegedly macho guys that work for one of these security firms in yeah. Afghanistan, even though they keep switching, they all end up under the table, and Porter is still standing. <laughs> That's a, yeah, and you know what? I believe it too. But Porter, uh, you know, was working as a freelance reporter in Kabul kind of in the war zone and um yeah i've met up with these guys i mean this is actually in the issue 30 which is the newest issue so the i should say that by the way if you do pick up the collected it's 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 in reverse order so the newest issue issue 30 is in the front so you don't have to dig too deep to get to porter's story about this let's read something from that southern fried after six okay well I just had it. Give me one sec. And while you're looking, that is the only critique of the book, and it came from the uh, Chicago Review, and that was there's no index. Right. There's no index. I think if it would be a year assignment for somebody to try and cross-reference all this stuff because they'd have to do it manually. But then, then they said, it's fun just to dive in, and that's exactly what I did. As you can see, I have marked different things, but one of them was Porter's story. But let's read from Southern Fried. Okay. Uh, Southern Fried after six. I grew up in a place in the Carolina Sandhills called Cola Town. It was small enough that I thought I had the town figured out, but by 19 I realized I was dead wrong. There was more to Cola Town than downtown, the cola plants, and the country club, the Dime Street public housing, two-night strip, and the fairgrounds. There was a spot on the backside of town, a mill district down by the Congaree called Olympia, that everybody kind of forgot about. It was an overgrown place full of sand quarries, dirt drives, and ramshackle old houses that hunkered down in the summer heat. At that point in my life, I was dueling boredom with any weapon I could find. My uncle had just given me a camera, a Pentax SL that was fully manual and had, a three, had three screw-on lenses. It was a passport out of the little slice of town I knew too well, into what trouble zones I could find. I drove the streets of downtown randomly, looking for elusive details, the camera on my front seat, the windows down. It was hard to know when I was doing anything right. I'd take a picture of an abandoned storefront or a black barbershop marquee, thinking I'd struck a punch for art. And in hind leg in my uncle's dark room, the images would emerge and I'd only see an empty room or a dangling sign. No snap, no wham yow. The summer was winning. Hunter, this is just, you know... If you had to read from your favorite piece, which one would you choose? I, you know, that's tough. It's I, I had to say I, I like I'm fairly proud of a story that I wrote called About Nineteen that is set in, in, in the uh, somewhere outside of Orangeburg and um, and also a story uh, the Mastercard. It's the two more recent short stories I've done. You know, it's been a evolution. I mean, you look back and. It's some of the stuff you wrote back when you were 23 and you went, and some of the stuff you're like, yeah, maybe I didn't do too bad. And it's, you know, but it's all, it's here warts and all. I just published everything. I didn't edit it. It's just, you know, there's, it's uh, unabridged. So, you know, I think that, and it's really to offer a lesson to any other aspiring writers. I mean, you, you, you're always, there's always going to be something that you're not um, that wild about after the fact, but if you're um, persistent and you uh, have the willingness to kind of uh, live in a cold water flat or, you know, or put up with, uh, you know, being too broke for a cab and that kind of thing, 
uh, and you're tenacious and you stick with it, you can you can get some things done. All right. You're in Charleston now. Four or five years ago when we last had you on the journal and on television, you had restored a house. Uh, now you've sold that and moved further north on the peninsula. Well, I still own that house, but, it, 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 you know, one of these days, hopefully it won't become the bane of my existence. But, yes, I've moved further north. Um, I have a day job. I'm very lucky. You know, I, have a, I own my own uh, design firm and uh, design custom homes. And you've got the support of, of your immediate family now. Oh, absolutely. And I've been very lucky in Charleston. I mean, you know, I'm a contributing editor of Garden and Gun magazine, which some of your listeners may have heard of. Uh, my wife's the director of photography for the magazine. I was just in the right place at the right time. So, um, again, it's it comes back to those southern connections and just, you know, this this magazine started with no readers and now it's got a subscription base of like 300,000 and the development of like getting the contributors in and bringing in some folks it's it's all again much like the minus times a lot of it was word of mouth well hunter kennedy the editor of the minus times collected a very successful underground literary journal i want to thank you for being with us today on walter edgar's journal thank you so much walter it was a pleasure This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Hunter Kennedy has had a fascinating life experience since he grew up here in Columbia. And the Minus Times is an edgy, offbeat, and irreverent look at the world. Music, art, contemporary events, that and the illustrations are something to behold. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's journal are their own and are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.